Well, <laughs> I, I'm always astonished how the heart plays a central role in the spiritual tradition of so many different religions, of course Judaism, Christianity, Islam, but also many other religions too. And yet this was discovered long before uh, <clears throat> modern science, modern medical science, realized the physiological importance of the heart. So something quite extraordinary that, but uh, certainly in ancient Israel, the heart is already the focal center point of the human person. <clears throat> And what's important, it's the center point of the <clears throat> mental faculties as well as the uh, emotions. Uh, this is something that, at least uh, in the West, one needs to relearn, because especially in Western Christian tradition, from about the 12th century onwards, there's been a separation between the heart and the head. <clears throat> and the head is the intellect, of course, and the heart, seat of the emotions only. But that, uh, the first person who really popularized that was actually St. Bernard. But if you look at Christian writers, Eastern and Western, of the first millennium, you'll find that there's really no separation. I mean, occasionally you'll find a separation, but the general tradition is that the heart is the center of the mental faculties as well as the emotional faculties. Um, and it corresponds in the Greek tradition, both Christian and Neoplatonic, uh, <clears throat> to the nous, which is mistranslated or misleadingly translated, perhaps one should say, as the intellect. Uh, it's not the intellect of the mental faculties, but it's the spiritual intellect. Uh, <clears throat> well, my topic is the heart in Syriac tradition. Uh, since Syriac tradition is probably unfamiliar to many of you. Uh, let me say just a brief word about that. Essentially, it's the indigenous strand of Christianity in the Middle East, and of course it's still present in the various uh, Christian churches, indigenous Christian churches, <clears throat> especially the, those of Syriac liturgical tradition, Syrian Orthodox, uh, <clears throat> Church of the East, uh, Chaldean, Syrian Catholic, and Maronite. Now, early Christianity didn't just spread uh, west to Greek and Latin, although that's the familiar literature one knows from early Christianity. It also spread east, where <coughs> Syriac, which is a dialect of Aramaic, uh, quickly became the literary language of Syriac-speaking, Aramaic-speaking Christianity. <clears throat> Aramaic, having been the lingua franca of the Middle East for well over a thousand years uh, before Arabic took over. So, um, <clears throat> Syriac, especially in the course of the first millennium AD, produced a very large literature, much of which is still little known and much is still unpublished, even major writers. Uh, the time span for this literature, the, the best literature is really from the 4th to the 13th century, but in fact there's been a continuity writing in classical Syriac right up to the present day. And the <clears throat> spiritual tradition within Syriac Christianity is really twofold. Partly it's native Syriac writers, on whom I of course concentrate, but also translations from some of the great Greek 
masters of the spiritual life, Macarius, Evagrius, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and others. So you've got these two different strands. And <coughs> Syriac uh, writers uh, combine elements from all these in different proportions. Well, my main sources today are authors from the 4th to 8th century, and especially those of the 7th and 8th century, which rather remarkably, because this, of course, is the first two centuries of the Hydra era, uh, it's the time of a real flourishing of the monastic life, especially in the Church of the East in what is today Iraq and Western Iran. Uh, the authors... <coughs> Uh, and there's a large literature which is still uh, partly unpublished but gradually becoming better known the only one who is known really outside Syriac tradition is a man called Isaac known as Isaac the Syrian uh, though of course he's not from Syria he's from further east uh, he's also called Isaac of Nineveh that's Mosul in that he was very briefly bishop of Mosul before retiring as a hermit to the mountains of western Iran he, in fact, came, rather interestingly, from the Qatar region, which in the 7th century uh, was um, a very important intellectual centre for Syriac-speaking Christianity, and he, he belongs to the late 7th century. <clears throat> well, to the main topic, spirituality of the heart. Now, for Syriac writers, as for Muslim writers, the holy book is the basic starting point. <clears throat> So the Bible is the main source, the jumping off point, we say. And in connection with the spirituality of the heart, this is intimately connected with the idea of the inner person, the interior person, which you'll find in Paul's epistles. And Paul himself elsewhere speaks of the eyes of the heart. And this, of course, is frequently found, that phrase, in both Greek and Syriac, and no doubt many other writers, and certainly in Ibn Arabi and elsewhere. I've, the last few days, and the last day, I'm constantly struck by how familiar the language of Ibn Arabi is to, to me from Syriac writers. Many of the themes are very similar. Well, the heart gets not only eyes, but all sorts of other limbs. I speak of the limbs of the heart. The face, the lips, the hands, even the knees and the feet. <clears throat> but there's other imagery too, which again uh, has its starting point in the biblical text, in particular the tablets of the heart. Uh, that, of course, also occurs in Ibn Arabi taken from the law-giving on Sinai. And <clears throat> that's a phrase you'll find in the Syriac Bible, in, both in the Old Testament in Jeremiah, and the New Testament in Paul's epistles. But we have other uh, phrases such as the door, the house, and especially the soil. And this goes back to the parable of the sower in the New Testament in the Gospels, where the word is sown in the heart. And so if the word is to take root, it needs soil. And <clears throat> this is uh, 
brought out very nicely in one of Ephraim's hymns. I'm not actually going to cite Ephraim very much because um, he's quite difficult, as it were, pinned down to small quotations. Now, Ephraim uh, has two witnesses for God. Nature, the natural world, the created world, and the book, the uh, scriptures, the Bible. And these provide the source of knowledge of God for humanity. And Ephraim says at one point, Once nature and the book has has cleansed the land, they sow in it the new commandments. That is to say, in the soil of the heart. And as we'll see, the idea of cleansing is very important. And the new commandments are basically, he will have in mind uh, in John's Gospel, the new commandment of love. And love, again, is a key theme, as we'll see. Now, I'm going to concentrate on two particular areas, uh, since it seems to be better to look at one or two things in detail rather than try and give you a much wider survey just sort of skimming over the surface. The first uh, theme I want to treat is the heart as the place of prayer. Now, the Greek and Russian tradition of the prayer of the heart is quite well known now through many excellent writings. Uh, The prayer of the heart is a phrase you'll find frequently in Syriac writers, but it hasn't the same technical meaning that it has uh, in connection with the Greek and Russian tradition. It's not a phrase repeated, um, repeated again and again, <coughs> either verbally or silently in the heart. The prayer of the heart, uh, uh, in that sense, is actually known uh, in certain Syriac writers. They speak of it, but there's no single phrase. They, they have various phrases for use in various conditions. But in general, the prayer of the heart is something much more general. Basically, it's the internal liturgy of the heart. And I suppose this would correspond to Ibn Arabi's Ibadah. Uh, Even the phrase that the prayer of the heart actually is found in the Syriac Bible. You won't find it in any translation uh, or in the Hebrew or in the Greek, but it does occur in the Syriac Bible. It's quite interesting. A number of the key terms are only found in Syriac uh, translation of the Bible. So you can at once identify what is specific to Syriac tradition as opposed to a strand that has its origins in Greek. Now, early Christian writers, Greek as well as Syriac, um, locate prayer or locate the heart as the place of prayer on the basis of a passage in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospels. When you pray, go into your interior room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. I'll quote you a passage from uh, one of the earliest major Syriac writers, a man called Afrahat, writing in what is today Iraq in the early 4th century. And he's explaining what this passage means. It's, It's quite delightful in its rather naive approach, but it's very nice. 
Why, my beloved, did our Savior teach us, saying, Pray to your Father in secret with the door shut? I will show you as far as I am capable. He said, Pray to your Father with the door closed. Our Lord's words thus tell us, tell us <clears throat> Pray in secret in your heart and shut the door. What is the door, he says, we must shut? Is it not your mouth? For here is the temple in which Christ dwells, just as the Apostle Paul said, you are the temple of the Lord. For him to enter into your inner person, into this house, to cleanse it from everything that is unclean, while the door, that is to say your mouth, is closed. That is the purpose of prayer. If this were not the case, how would you understand the passage? Suppose you happened to be in the desert where there was no house and no door. Would you be able to pray? How could you do it? How could you pray in secret? Or if you happened to be on the top of a mountain, would you be unable to pray? So <clears throat> that's his uh, rationale for uh, the heart as the place of prayer. Now what happens in this liturgy of the heart, the prayer of the heart? There is another 4th century Syriac book, anonymous, called the Book of Steps. <coughs> um, there's an English translation only very recently been published in the Secession Studies series. In this um, Book of Steps, which is really the spiritual guide to an ascetic community. There is one, the 30 treatises in it, and one of them uh, is devoted to this idea of the internal liturgy of the heart. And he presents it on three levels. He says liturgical worship is happening on three different levels, or in three different spheres, perhaps one should say. In heaven is the liturgy of the angels who provide the model. And then on earth you have of the Christian community, the church, and then of the individual person, it's the inner person with the heart as the altar. And he says that there's great need for all three of these to function together in harmony. And then an, another stage in as where the development of this idea is the idea of prayer as an internal offering or sacrifice on this altar of the heart. <clears throat> and here again, you've got a biblical source in one of the Psalms, 140 or 141. Uh, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. Now, one of the most important things about sacrifice uh, and in, in the Old Testament is, of course, that the sacrifice must be unblemished. So the sacrifice of prayer on the altar of the heart must be pure. And you'll find time and again the, the phrase pure prayer as the ideal. So the prayer of the heart must be purified of all blemishes. 
And the Book of the Steps, this 4th century anonymous work, uh, says in another passage later on, if sin is not removed, if evil thoughts are not removed from the heart, if all this, if the heart is not cleansed, then the heart will not be purified. Uh, Aphrahat, um, in another passage, nicely illustrates the need for purity of heart from the example of the sacrifices of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, there was a great deal of discussion in Jewish and Christian writers about why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And all sorts of answers were provided. And they also asked, how did they know? And Ephrahat, in fact, provides the answer to both these questions. He says, it was through Abel's purity of heart that his offering was acceptable before God, while that of Cain was rejected. And how do we know that Abel's offering was accepted while Cain's was rejected? How was Abel aware that his offering had been accepted? And how did Cain realize that his had been rejected? I will try to explain to you about this as well as I can. You are aware, my beloved, that an offering that was acceptable before God was distinguished by the fact that fire used to descend from heaven and the offering would be consumed by it. Now when Abel and Cain offered up their sacrifices together, living fire that was doing service, i.e. liturgical service, before God came down and devoured Abel's pure sacrifice. But it did not touch Cain's because it was impure. It was from this that Abel knew that his offering had been accepted and Cain that his had been rejected. The fruits of Cain's heart later testified and showed that he was full of deceit when he killed his brother. For what his mind had conceived, his hands brought to birth. But Abel's purity of heart constitutes his prayer. Now, of course, you will comment that if you read that passage in Genesis, there's nothing about fire. Now, there is actually one Jewish-Greek uh, version which does introduce fire. And this tradition uh, was found especially in uh, Jewish exegesis and especially, above all, in early Syriac exegesis. And it's, in fact, a transfer from other passages in the Old Testament where fire does descend on accepted sacrifices uh, transferred to that of Cain and Abel. Uh, Ephrahat, again rather delightfully, goes on in another passage saying, if uh, <clears throat> the offering of prayer, the sacrifice of prayer, is blemished, then the angels, whose duty is to carry prayer up to God, the angels will reject it if it isn't pure. They simply won't take it up to God any further. So we have this centrality of the idea of purity of heart. And uh, in many ways, the key gospel passage is in the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And uh, we'll see later on how seeing 
God, who is of course invisible, can take place. Now, the idea that Afrahat introduced into his discussion of Cain and Abel's sacrifice, that to center fire as accepting sacrifice, becomes very important in later Syriac tradition, uh, both in a liturgical context and in the spiritual context of the interior liturgy. For these later writers associate the descent of fire, which of course is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit, with the invocation of the Holy Spirit in the Eucharistic liturgy. Uh, the term for the liturgies, uh, Eucharistic liturgy in Syriac is the mysteries, uh, as in Greek, termisteria. <clears throat> and at the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the priest invites the Holy Spirit to come down on the offering of bread and wine and make it effectively the body and blood of Christ in conformity with Christ's words in the Last Supper. As it were, representing the occasion of the Last Supper and um, linking the two events, the Last Supper with the liturgical celebration, completely separate in historical time, but uniting them in sacred time. And this idea of sacred time as uniting what is separate in historical time is extremely important, I think, for uh, understanding what's really going on in uh, the minds of the, these writers. Now, this uh, parallelism seen between the prayer of the heart as an offering, as a liturgical form of liturgical offering, and parallelism with the Eucharistic liturgy is brought out very dramatically by a seventh, early 7th century writer known as Sahadona, uh, who was, belonged to the Church of the East, but he got into as many um, writers on prof profound subjects did. He got into trouble with his uh, ecclesiastical superiors and uh, had to take refuge in Edessa. And in fact, the one manuscript of his uh, wonderful Book of Perfection, very long work, uh, it's translated into French completely, but only excerpts in English, the one manuscript was actually written in Edessa, modern Urfa, in 837, and then it was specifically written for the monastery of St. Catherine on Mount Sinai, and uh, the manuscript today is actually... Uh, like many manuscripts from St. Catherine's, divided up between various Western libraries. But the catalogue of the so-called new finds at St. Catherine's has just come out, and although it's unidentified in the catalogue, I was absolutely delighted to see two folios of this manuscript still at St. Catherine's Monastery. So uh, the scribe who wrote and dedicated the manuscript to St. Catherine's uh, could rest assured at least a bit of the book still remains there. I was uh, quite excited to find that. Uh, now let me read you this passage from Sardona. He says, <clears throat> If the commencement of our prayer is wakeful and attentive and we wet our cheeks 
with tears stemming from the emotion of our hearts or the stirrings of our hearts, then our prayer will be made perfect. And of course it's talking about the prayer of the heart. In accordance with God's wish, being without blemish, it will then be accepted in his presence and the Lord will be pleased with us and have delight in our offering. As he perceives the pleasing scent of our heart's pure fragrance, he will send the fire of his Holy Spirit to consume our sacrifices and raise up our mind along with them in the flames to heaven. Then we shall behold the Lord to our delight and not to our destruction, as the stillness of his revelation is taking up phraseology from Revelation to Abraham in Genesis. As the stillness of his revelation falls upon us and the hidden things of the knowledge of him will be portrayed in us, our hearts will be given spiritual joy along with the hidden mysteries which I am unable to disclose in words to the simple. In this way, we make our bodies a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, one that pleases God in our rational service. And then in another passage, he goes on to describe the effects of this descent of fire on the internal liturgy of the heart. And it's a very striking passage. It's quite long, but I think it's worth reading in full. He says, Happy is that person of love who has caused God, who is love, to dwell in his heart. Happy are you, O heart so small and confined. Yet you have caused him whom heaven and earth cannot contain to dwell spiritually in your womb as in a restful abode. Happy that illumined eye of the heart, which in its purity clearly beholds him before whose sight the seraphs veil their face. And he quotes John's Gospel, He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We will come to him and make him a habitation with him. And then he goes on, where is Christ loved, if not in the heart? And where is he manifested, if not there as well? Blessed indeed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And where does he dwell, if not in the heart's midst? I will dwell in them and walk in them, that's 2 Corinthians. You see how spacious the pure heart that is filled with love is. God can even walk around there. <laughs> Blessed are you, O luminous heart, the abode of the divinity. Blessed are you, heart that is pure, that beholds the hidden being. Happy are you, O flesh and blood, the dwelling place of the consuming fire. Happy are you, mortal body made out of dust, wherein resides the fire that sets the worlds alight. It is truly a matter for wonder and astonishment that he before whom the heavens are not pure, who puts awe into his angels, should take delight and pleasure 
in a heart of flesh that is filled with love for him, that is open wide to him, that is purified so as to act as his holy dwelling place, joyfully serving and ministering to him, to him in whose presence thousand upon thousand Ten thousand upon thousand fiery angels stand in awe as they minister to his glory. So with that uh, astonishing passage, I'll pass on to my next theme from the liturgy of the heart to the mirror of the heart. And this, of course, again, is something very familiar to you from Ibn Arabi. Now the first thing to remember that mirrors in antiquity are not of glass so a lot of this imagery is quite difficult to use in the modern context. Uh, Mirrors were of brass and if you've ever been to a museum with Etruscan mirrors you see they have wonderful designs on these mirrors, on the back of the mirrors and in order to function as a mirror they had to be highly polished and kept highly polished and highly purified so they serve as a very good image of what the heart needs to um, be kept in this high state of polish now once again the uh, New Testament basis biblical basis is in Paul's writings Uh, he in fact uh, uses the mirror imagery twice once in a rather negative way he says now in this world as in a mirror we see as in a parable or enigma so it's rather poor reflection of divine reality but it's much more positively used in another passage in 2 Corinthians he says with uncovered faces we shall see the glory of the Lord as in a mirror so the glory is reflected in this mirror now in the Syriac writers you'll find there are two main approaches Uh, firstly the mirror is seen as actually being outside the heart but looked on by the eye of the heart and it needs to be looked on if, if you can see anything in the mirror it needs to be looked on by the pure eye or the luminous eye of the heart uh, Ephraim's very keen on this image and uh, according to his understanding of how one sees the more light in the physical eye the more you see so the more uh, divine light in the and purity of the interior eye of the heart the more you see or, or are enabled to see in the mirror and the mirror itself is maybe a whole variety of different things it may be the gospels um, maybe the old testament maybe all sorts of things and uh, here's a short passage from Ephraim where he says the scriptures are laid out like a mirror and the person whose spiritual eye is pure and clear sees therein the image of truth truth in uh, Ephraim is divine reality and again in another this is <coughs> passage he says you will do well not to let to drop from your hands the polished mirror of the holy gospel uh, and the, you see the polished mirror only of course if your heart is uh, the eye of your heart is itself pure and polished and 
in seeing the polished mirror of the gospel, you will see reflected in it your own sinful state, in that it shows up what is blemished. The <coughs> mirror imagery is specifically linked up with the passage we've come across before in the Beatitudes by Isaac of Nineveh in the late 7th century. He's talking about St. Anthony, the great Egyptian desert father. He says, because Anthony's heart was pure, he saw God, who is invisible, as it were, in a mirror. So he's actually gone a stage further than Paul in 2 Corinthians. It's not the glory of God, but he saw God. The second, in some ways, uh, more intriguing image where the mirror image is used is where the heart itself is the mirror. And this uh, doesn't turn up until some of the later writers from the 6th and 7th century. A uh, 6th century writer says that the human person has innate within him or her a natural mirror. Uh, and this is uh, taken as the image in which humanity, image of God in which humanity is created. Uh, at the beginning of Genesis. Now this image of course, this internal mirror of the heart which should reflect the image of God has been rusted over by sin and impurities and the cause of that or the initial um, start of that rusting was the fall of Adam and Eve uh, as described in Genesis. Uh, uh, the Syriac writers describe this as disobedience to God uh, as the cause of the fall. It's rather different from certainly the Augustinian view. <clears throat> and Ephraim speaks of that commandment of God as a tiny commandment. So it's overlooking a very small commandment but having immense consequences. Now, there's one writer uh, who is very fond of this imagery, and I quote a uh, couple of passages from him. He's a man who's very little known. Most of his works aren't yet published. Uh, he's called Simeon, rather delightfully, of the Book of the Grace, or of the Book of Grace. And that's because he seems to be an author of a very wonderful book of short sayings, which is called the Book of Grace. He's an almost exact contemporary of Isaac of Nineveh and is associated with the same monastery of Rabban Shabur in western Iran, yeah. a locality unknown exact. And this is what he says. <clears throat> Inside the heart, there is a spiritual mirror. He uses a, a word which you could translate noetic, in, intelligible. I, I never know quite how to translate this in Syriac. But early Syriac writers would simply say spiritual mirror, so that's what I've done. Glorious and ineffable. It was fashioned by the creator of all things, 
out of the spiritual potential of all natural beings in creation, visible and spiritual, as a seat of honor for his image and as a Shekhinah, the dwelling place for his <coughs> invisibleness. He made it the bond and link and perfection of all natural beings. It is what the fathers call the beauty of our true self. In it resides the spirit of adoption which we receive from holy baptism, and upon it the light of grace shines out. Whoever has cleaned away from this most beautiful mirror the filthy impurity of the sinful passions, whoever has renewed the mirror and set it up in the condition it formerly had when it was created, then this person will see in the sublime rays that emanate from it all the spiritual potential which belongs to natural beings and objects in the created world, both far off and close at hand. It is as though they were all set out and laid bare before his eyes. He can examine them thanks to the hidden power of the Holy Spirit who resides and works in it, seeing that the natural beings and objects in the created world are all arrayed and fixed there. And when grace overshadows, that's a deliberate uh, reflection of the Annunciation narrative in Luke's Gospel, and when grace overshadows the pure souls of the saints, it alights on this mirror and shines out. Indeed, so bright is it as a result of the overshadowing of divine grace that it surpasses by 10,000 times the effect of the sun shining on an ordinary mirror. The soul is struck with wonder at its beauty and in its impassable light it beholds grace's new light. The mind, in turn, becomes aware of mysteries both past and future, and through the mirror's light, it beholds the light of the new world. It becomes aware of the inheritance of the saints, and it tastes the delight of the revelations of God's mysteries. It rests in stillness. It forgets its pain and tribulation. It rejoices in its hope and gives praise in hidden silence to God who has given this. He who dwells in the protection of the Most High, that's a psalm and then another psalm, in your light do we see light. As I pointed out as I was reading that, the phrase grace overshadows is a deliberate reflection of the Annunciation narrative. Uh, in the Greek text of the Gospels of um, well, Luke and in another key passage in John which speaks of the word uh, tabernacling amongst us, there are two different words in the Greek but in the Syriac you've got one single word which is extremely unusual and I think it's a deliberate choice by the translators in order to take you back to the Passover narrative in Exodus where one of the many 
Jewish interpretations of the word which we um, have taken over, Passover, is, um, was this word, overshadowing or tabernacling. There's no totally satisfactory English equivalent. So, um, uh, in Ephraim in particular, you'll find a strong parallelism between the Passover narrative and uh, with the lamb sacrificed and Christ as the new lamb sacrificed. And the analogies are quite extraordinary, the way Ephraim brings them out. But anyhow, the, the point here is it's a deliberate link with the incarnation, the, the moment of conception in Mary. And also, this term is deliberately used in many of the uh, Eucharistic anaphoras. Uh, Syriac, incidentally, has far more uh, Eucharistic anaphoras than um, any other tradition. There are about 80 in Syriac, Western Syriac tradition. And this uh, term, which I've translated overshadows uh, here, uh, is the key term that's very often used of the action of the Holy Spirit. And um, it's important to keep this in mind in connection with another passage I'm going to read uh, from Simeon, and he says uh, as follows. When divine grace is active within us, the light of love for all humanity is so poured out on the mirror of the heart that sinners and evil people do not exist for us. But when we accept the machinations of the demons, then we grow dark as a result of anger and we find that there is not a single good or just person left in the world. When we get intoxicated by all sorts of imaginings, then the various passions are woken up within us as if from sleep, ready for action. But when the mind become blind to and no longer singles out for notice the weaknesses of our neighbour, then the heart has become renewed in God. Now what he means here, and it's explained later on in the part that I went quite, is that the light of love which uh, illumines the interior mirror of the heart, this light of love enables a person to see in the heart's mirror uh, the rest of humanity, all humanity, indeed all creation, in its essential and intended nature, i.e. before the fall in uh, Christian terminology. Uh, such a person sees other people, as it were, from the perspective of God and no longer from a human perspective. And what is seen with the heart's inner eye filled with love is the potential, the potential intended by the creator of each individual. And no longer are others, other people seen from the, a human perspective of the here and now involving moral judgments. And uh, Simeon and Isaac and many other of these writers emphasize that a person who possesses true humility of heart, and this is a very important concept in several of them, such a person in fact sees even open sinners as better than themselves. Um, and he says, I think this is Simeon, we have learnt from experience 
that when divine grace visits us, the light of the love of our fellow human beings, which is shed on the mirror of the heart, is such that we do not any longer see in the world people as sinners or evil. Now, this uh, may strike many people as very curious, but I think um, if, if you read uh, extensively Isaac and Simeon, you can see exactly what he means. Uh, it's basically, as I understand it, it's looking at creation, everyone, everyone and everything in creation from a divine perspective and not from a human perspective. So, uh, summing up, um, the interior mirror of the heart thus has two main functions which it can only achieve if that mirror is kept highly polished, i.e. if there's um, kept in a state of purity of heart. Uh, firstly, it reflects the image of God in which human beings were created. Uh, that is its intention. And then as a consequence of that, it um, enables a person with purity of heart and the pure mirror of the heart to see all creation as illumined by the light of divine love. Uh, that is to say, reflecting God's own love for his creation. I'll read a, a wonderful passage which is quite well known from uh, Isaac of Nineveh where he talks about, uh, well he asks the question, what is a compassionate heart? I, a heart that's uh, been touched by this divine love. And he says, the heart's burning for all creation, for human beings, for birds and animals, and even for demons and everything that is. At the recollection of them, at the, and at the sight of them, a person's eyes gush forth with tears owing to the force of the compassion which constrains his heart, so that as a result of its abundant sense of mercy, the heart shrinks and cannot bear to hear or examine any harm or small suffering of anything in creation. For this reason, he offers up prayer with tears at all times, even for irrational animals, and for the enemies of truth, and for those who harm him, for their forgiveness. As a result of the immense compassion infused in his heart without measure, like God's compassion, he does this even for reptiles. <laughs> the last bit is, I think, because... Um, Isaac was living at a time when Zoroastrianism was still uh, very much around in uh, society and reptiles belong to the creation of Ahriman, of the evil uh, part. So this is, as it were, a dig at that. Um, I'll give you one more uh, quotation. Time is almost up. As for the in first intended function of the mirror of the heart, there's another uh, Syriac writer slightly later from the early 8th century 
who's known as uh, John the Elder, or in Christian Arabic tradition, he's known as the spiritual sheikh. And he puts the matter as follows. Cleanse your mirror. That's the mirror of your heart, of course. And then, without any doubt, the triune light will be manifested to you in it. Place the mirror in your heart and you will realize that your God is indeed alive. So, and he goes on a bit later, he says, this internal mirror is a mirror of the light of him who sees all. So that sort of illumines the passage of Simeon that I quoted, where in the mirror the whole of creation is seen. Now, uh, if uh, I could end up by at risk of descending from the sublime to the ridiculous, um, I've often wondered what would be a good counterpart to this imagery of uh, the mirror, now that mirrors are of glass and it simply won't work. Of course, you do have to keep the glass clean, but not uh, the struggle to keep um, a bronze mirror clean, which needs a lot of effort. And it seems to me... Um, quite a good counterpart would be to think of a saucepan that uh, you've managed to cook a rather greasy um, a dish with a lot of grease and oil in it, fat and oil in it, and it's burnt. And how do you polish that saucepan again? Uh, in order to do this, there are two things necessary. You need an exterior agent of some um, something to deal with the grease but you also and above all you need a great deal of elbow grease a great deal of <coughs> hard work polishing it and I, I think um, this would be quite a good analogy to the way that the interior mirror of the heart needs to be kept in a high state of polish so you, you need to think of seeing your face or the face of not your face but uh, the almost the image of God, seeing the image of God in your polished saucepan. So thank you for listening. <laughs>